Friends and listeners, today's episode is with Anne Yuriko. She is the co-founder of Floodgate, one of the original seed funds here in Silicon Valley. And Floodgate has been an investor in Twitter, Twitch, Lyft, Cruise, Okta, TaskRabbit, a bunch of amazing world-changing companies. And we chat about a number of things with Anne, including her path to becoming a VC, what she thinks about today as as an early stage investor, what has shaped her and and the things that have shaped her in her life, as well as what's changing about investing today that makes it quite different 11 years after founding Floodgate in 2008. Today's episode is brought to you by Playcast Media. Playcast is the easiest way to get started in putting on a professional premium podcast in your home or office. I use Playcast's equipment it is amazing. Go to playcastmedia.com to get a premium professional podcast in a box delivered right to your door. All of the equipment, all of every everything you need, boom, one click, and it's at your doorstep instead of 10, 20, 30 hours of figuring out which equipment you should have to sound as good as possible. And it's something that uh, I had to go through rounds and rounds of equipment until I was satisfied with with the equipment that I was using. Go to playcastmedia.com to just skip all of that fuss and go right to a premium professional podcast in a box delivered right to your doorstep. The episode is also brought to you by my dog's favorite treats, Dope Dog. They make the tastiest CBD treats for dogs who need a little something extra. I am so pumped when I tell people about Dope Dog. It is so different than than really any other products that I recommend to people, but it is uh, my dog's favorite treat. And dog parents out there, they love them because it's it is made with amazing human grade ingredients and high quality CBD. And because if your dog suffers from separation anxiety, joint pain, or even if they're just having a bad day, Dope Dog can help. They have a full collection of CBD products designed specifically for dogs including treats, oils, and even CBD shampoo. Get that mane looking great, man. Dope Dog CBD treats. Go to www.dope.dog and enter the promo code below the line for 20% off. That's www.dope.dog. Tell them James sent you. Get 20% off. All right. Without further delay, let's get into it with Anne Mirako. This is Below the Line. Anne, cheers. Cheers. We've got some Rebel Banana Nut Protein. Really cool, really cool drink company called Rebel out of uh, San Francisco and Banana Nut Protein. Yeah, soulfully crafted. It is so, it well, so they say. It's so good that even as we started our interview, I already drank half the bottle. So good. That's good. It's got some turmeric in there, Brazilian nuts. I don't yeah. know what the Brazilian nuts do, but the turmeric will be great for inflammation. That's right. Mm-hmm. Great. For, it's great. Uh, a great anti-inflammatory. Tastes really good. Yeah. I don't know. Is this supposed to be like a like a protein shake as well? Yes. Not bad. Rebel. They make a great matcha latte too. Um, can't enough about that crazy drink. <laughs> and great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 
We know each other through Mike Maples, mm -hmm. mutual good friend of ours, partner of yours, I guess partner of mine as well. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it is, it's uh, he's an amazing human. How long have you known Mike? So we've known each other for 12 years now. Wow. Maybe actually longer than that. We've been working together for 11 to 12 years. And I, I knew him probably a few years prior to that. So, Well, in the professional kind of context, you guys are like a power duo in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and Floodgate is what it is because of both of you. But it's uh, it is um, you guys have a very fun dynamic to your relationship that I feel like entrepreneurs as as an entrepreneur, we kind of see from the outside. Yeah. And it seems very fun, playful to work with you, with you guys. What are your favorite aspects of working with, with Mike? I, I you know, this is going to yeah. be the below line version of, yeah, yeah. of the Mike Maples, potentially hope it's not, you know, <laughs> he's not too sensitive about it. What are your favorite aspects of working with, with someone like Mike and yeah. your least favorite aspects? So, um, the favorites, it's easy to come up with, you know, I started working with Mike because he thinks in a way that I don't at all. Um, and I've always admired it. And I've always thought, even when I was getting started working with him, one of the drivers for that for me was, here's this guy who has a, ca a set of capabilities that I don't think I'll ever fully understand, but I a hundred, a thousand percent appreciate from day one. And he has sort of these magical superpowers. Some people would call it marketing. Some people would call it positioning. Some people would call it a way with words. But he can see something and the potential in it and put it into words that almost no one else I've ever seen is able to do. And so he expands my worldview in so many ways. And I, I just love that. I've always I've always come at things from more of a very logical standpoint, and he approaches it from a very different dimension. And uh, and ninety percent of the time, I'll even say to him, "That doesn't even make sense." But that's the beauty of it, right? He doesn't even make sense, but there's a dream in that. And so that that's that's been. I think that's the core of why I love working with this guy. But then you add to that the fact that in the business world, you see a lot of people are very successful and just mean. And mm -hmm. he's probably the antithesis to that. He's a generous human being. He's incredibly kind. Uh, when I was getting started and I had made a couple of good investments, people would always contact him and say, oh, Mike, you know, can I connect you with this journalist about this investment. And he, unlike almost every successful VC I've known, would say, actually, that's not my investment. That's Anne's investment. And you should talk to her. So someone who is willing to build me up um, along the way and, and really help me. So, so I think it's the, that combination too. I think he's a mad scientist genius. And then uh, he happens to also just be a really great human being. And you'll see why if you ever meet his parents. I mean, oh, really? what wonderful human beings they are. Yeah. Well, in episode two of the of the podcast, um, and he was helpful in getting this off the ground in episode two, I did love. So he did have a uh, 
tremendous way with words. He's a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he also, his stories had to do a lot with his parents. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, now that I've done 25 or 26 episodes, it's, it, it is becoming more and more clear how rare that, that is. Yeah. Like he, he's telling the, you know, stories that have helped shaped him, you know, going back to, uh, he was like fishing when he was like 11 with his dad and learned this, this, uh, very impressive lesson for an 11 year old to pick up but it was you know that type of storytelling and yeah and it's almost so good that you wonder like man is that like premeditated kind of just uh just slick story but it's not he's so he's too kind and sometimes too disheveled to think that he's <laughs> it's this slick manufactured version yeah. and it's uh and I remember the episode that he did with uh, with Tim Ferriss. Same thing. It's just so genuine. It, it kind of comes through the speakers. Yeah. But is that something? So you said that you appreciated that mm-hmm. that uh, balance. Is that something that you always appreciated in your professional career, or you know, would and the the undergraduate or early stage uh, PhD candidate have appreciated someone that doesn't necessarily make sense all the time? I think I think what I'm always attracted to is just people who think differently from me. So so yeah, on some level, I think so. Uh, I love the debate. Like I love engaging in conversation around things that I don't understand. And so I seek out people who have a different perspective from me. and and I love that as a learning opportunity. So I think that one of the things that I value in Mike is that he comes at the problem from a very different angle. And sometimes that drives me crazy, right? He's uh, he's looking at it from a very different perspective from me. And so uh, I think that that can lead to some of the debates where it feels like you don't go anywhere. Uh, but at the same time, I just, I, I really, I've really like come to appreciate and um, love that side of him. We had a, we had a couple of coaches who've come in and described the differences between the two of us. Uh, our most recent uh, personality profile revealed, this is not surprising to anyone on the team or to me, was that Mike is extraordinarily emotional. You know, you'll see that when he's giving a talk or giving a speech or um, even probably in an interview, he will probably cry a few times. Um, and and I remember there was one time when I was teaching a class uh, and we we're talking about category design and he was talking about the person who in- introduced frozen foods and how that person created really an incredible category and a business around that. And we're teaching a bunch of Stanford engineering students. And he literally starts to tear up and say that whenever he's in the grocery store, he goes to the frozen food aisle to pay homage uh, to this guy. And and I, I said, I'm sorry, but I have to call BS on that because A, you never go to the grocery store. And B, you are certainly not paying homage <laughs> to I think it's Lauren's fisheye in the frozen food aisle. So, oh. you know, like part of it is like that, that, that difference where I'm, I don't cry. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was pregnant with my second child, Mike looked at me, he said, do you cry a lot during your pregnancy? And I said, I never cry. 
<laughs> and so um, that is a big difference. But again, it's like those differences that animate us. And, you know, he'll start crying over some story about the moon landing and I'll sit there and I'll roll my eyes. And um, but there's there's deep affection for that storyteller and really what he is feeling because he is it comes from like such an amazing, genuine place. And I think people see that and recognize it. Do you? And it's and it's rare in a, in a world that does feel very transactional yeah. at times or or doesn't feel like it's the relationship first, but kind yeah. of the outcome first. What personality test was it? It's called the cult culture index. Yeah. 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 I've, and I, I, I really thought it was interesting because it was so short. Yeah. It's like six minutes. Yeah. And it captured us in a really interesting way because we've taken, you know, ones that take an hour or two hours. And I thought Culture Index actually captured us as effectively as those longer ones did. So we had uh, a guest, um, I think it was episode 12 or so, Diana Chapman, a chat about Enneagrams mm -hmm. uh, for for a good part of the the episode. But Culture Index hasn't come up, but um, it's, it, it is really fascinating. It's like six minutes to do the survey yeah. and then you get this psychometric report that, you know, they really stand by yeah. but um it, do you remember your your persona what it was um, called or your dynamics there, was no, there wasn't really a, a name for it but when they were walking me through what it means um part of it was that i i will oftentimes see a conclusion so i will derive this is where things are going or this is therefore what's going to happen and I'm very time impatient. And so oftentimes I will state the conclusion without telling people the backtrack of how we can get there from a logical standpoint, even though I am extraordinarily logical. And so uh, the, the really defining characteristics of my personality and my persona is I love to sort of say, here's the, here's the sort of end state that I see or that we should go to, or that's going to happen. And then, and then being, being extraordinarily impatient all the time. It should have happened yesterday. Um, all the things that we need to do should have happened. You know, why are people not following along? And then, um, and then being pretty logical about everything that, that happens within organizations or the way I interact. Um, and, and so, I'm trying to be more in touch with my emotional self. <laughs> and so um, it's interesting because, you know, Mike is driven by emotion. So this this guy was showing us, you know, how we differ. And one of the is just he approaches things from a very emotional standpoint. Mm. Well, man, there's so much I could ask about yeah. that. It sounds really uh, fascinating, especially in kind of a, a VC and investing lens. What would you say? Uh, of your profile, what would you say gives you super strengths as a, a VC? And and I could surmise a few of these, yeah. but I would love to hear from you and your own introspection. And then what would you say, okay, these are areas that I do need to complement myself with other team members around me on? Oh, I think I need massive compliments to my personality. So I think first of all is it's so many things are in the details. So um, you can't just sort of jump to a conclusion, right? You have to execute on all these details in order to get there. 
And so we're really fortunate within even Floodgate to have great detail-oriented people. Some of them are behind the scenes. Some of them are investors alongside me and Mike. I think Iris uh, Choi is a great example of someone who's very much detail-oriented, understands the numbers. Um, I would even argue Arjun Chopra, our other partner, who is more on the enterprise side. He's also very detail-oriented, and he will surface questions that that I haven't thought of because I'm so into thinking about sort of this this other state. Um, I think that is one of my superpowers, though, is is that I like to think about where things are going and to some extent why. Uh, and, and that's sort of an intellectual exercise I'm constantly doing uh, in my own head. And and I think in venture capital, especially when you're really early stage, it's just a healthy thing to always be engaging in. I think the uh, within an organization, though, the the place that can be really hard is the degree to which uh, I can be impatient. And uh, I think this sort of is my my critical flaw. It is one of my advantages too, in the sense that it's, I think it's what's driven me forward always. Uh, but I think in human relationships, you can't be impatient. And there's certain things that just take time. And, and I've really learned this having three kids, uh, that in my relationship with them, I will often manifest this impatience. And I realize that that is, that's a poison when it comes to children, you know, and, and so it's, it's the one thing that's always been a, an important reminder of, you know, this, this moment, whether, or not, whether it's going slowly or badly or in the, the least optimal path, it is still the moment. And, um, and that lesson definitely translates into startups in the sense that, when I invest, I'm investing so early that there is no path. There's no charted directions or a map. And so the length of time it takes to get from where we are to something that makes sense to the rest of the world is uncharted and it's unknown. And so um, being extraordinarily patient is actually something that's important. How do you adapt with with a, a profile that loves to think about the end state? How do you adapt to early stage investing and, and choosing founders and teams when I mean that's the last thing that, that anyone can imagine in many ways, the end state? Yeah, I guess it's less end state as it is. Uh, I love to think about the problems that exist in the world that people haven't noticed yet or where, what are the important uh, properties that I think will mm -hmm. really emerge before people have really recognized it? And what does that mean for things? Um, as an example, right now, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that the social contract between employer and employee feels very different from where things were 50, 60 years ago. And and so I'll start with something like that, right? The, mm -hmm. the person who's working for someone has a very diff different relationship than they did 50, 60 years ago. 
And there was a moment when I was in college and I, and I was, uh, I was following around the CEO of Hewlett Packard during a, a spring break externship. And he literally went to three or four luncheons that honored people who had worked at Hewlett Packard for 30 to 40 years. And if I think about that now, that's just crazy. I'm not sure you, if you went to a luncheon at any company to see how many people worked there for 30 to 40 years, I don't think you would see the kind of massive room that was filled with Hewlett Packard employees today. And so, um, so things like that, I think are really interesting. And then for early stage investor, that means, you know, the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for society? What does that mean for the worker? Who is the worker? How does that change Main Street businesses? How does that change large corporations? Are corporations dead? You know, the, right. there's some really interesting questions that emerge from that. And I think that's what, I, what I'm talking about of like, I love to look at that kind of conclusion mm -hmm. without filling in all of the details. That's fascinating. When did you start thinking about that problem area? Um, I would say I started diving into it probably about a year ago, just in, in looking at how uh, the students that I teach, they are changing jobs at a rate that I definitely didn't, and I didn't see my friends doing. Uh, I was also fascinated last year by the the whole cryptocurrency craze, and the part that I thought was really interesting about it was how they were trying to use cryptocurrency to to basically reward people's work for the work that they actually did. And I thought that was a really interesting concept because then now you went from open source development to like actually doing, paying people for the work that they do. Um, and so it was sort of this idea that, hey, you know, if you look at a developer, they have this option of, working as a, you know, uh, on a project that they're really passionate about in open source, but they don't get compensated for it. They could be a contractor um, at an agency potentially, or they can go work for Google. And if you go work for Google, it takes you what, three or four months because the interview process, because of onboarding before you're actually working on the project that you're interested in working on. If you get to work on the project you're interested in working on. Exactly. And then and then on the other hand, open source, you just sort of, you, you, you basically get involved with the project, right? And how easy is that? The idea that there has to be gradations in between, to me, sort of is, is an interesting concept. And so, and I think you see the reflection of this in society, um, in everything from gig workers, all the way out to people who want to work for a company, but want to work as a remote worker. And so that, that relationship between work and who I am as a human being and am I an entrepreneur or am I, am I working for an organization? What is, what is it to work for an organization? I think those are all really interesting and very um, dynamically changing concepts right now, which is why I'm drawn to them. That's interesting. Yeah, it reminds me in, in healthcare, there's this new concept of the patient will see you now. And it's yeah. not the doctor being the expert, it's the patient 
being able to look through Yelp, chat with a few doctors, go and see, then go Google, then yeah. get a second opinion, then get a third opinion. Um, and and it, the patient is in the driver's seat. And, and more than ever, the uh, an employee is in the driver's seat of, their, of where they're going to put their time, work, energy. And that, even on that concept of the doctor, though, I think it's really interesting because you think of the doctor now as maybe they don't want to work for a gigantic hospital system. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to work for themselves. But, you know, in order to do that, you have to set up your own practice. You have to do all these different things. The thing that they're really good at is being a doctor. But there should be software out there that enables the doctor to be a doctor, but also run their business. Right. And that that changes the doctor into a solopreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's the power of of software and demand creation that that the the technical world can now do for for a lot of individuals, for a lot of employees. How does an insight like that where the employee employer relationship is changing? How does that? How does that come about? Is it weeks and months like I and, and I mean, kind of like drilling into the specifics of of for someone whose profession is to think about these conclusion states or where the world is going and be ahead of try to be ahead of everyone else. Yeah. Um, how does it come about? Is it a, weeks and months of thinking about it, a certain big surface area problem? Is it, whoa, that conversation that I just had and that person said it this way on that Tuesday just flipped everything? How does it yeah. happen for you? For in, Maybe we'll take this as an example. Yeah. So for me, I think uh, it's interesting. We've we've thought about like what the learning styles of our organization is, and different people have different learning styles. I I like to sort of go inside my head for a little bit. So one of the things that I think prompted this for me was a lot of people have been talking about the future of work for a while, uh, but the the kinds of things that people talked about in the future of work wasn't satisfying to me and I, I didn't know why. And and so I needed to figure out what the first sort of meta observation was and how that kind of puts everything together. So for me, it was the social contract between employee and employer. And underneath that came a lot of the, the themes that I had kind of noticed in disparate circles. And it came out of some conversations that I'd had with people. Some of it was remote work. So remote work came about because actually some of our companies are now working completely remotely. We had seen a few larger scale organizations who are now fully remote. Uh, some of our CEOs who had pretty large organizations were struggling with parts of what remote work entailed. And yet you had really interesting technologies like Slack and Zoom that were making this much more possible. And so it felt like something was on the verge of shifting there. Uh, the, the concept of the solopreneur was becoming increasingly interesting to me uh, as, as someone who's an early investor in Lyft. We could see that the power of that platform and a lot of these platforms that uh, provided sort of a platform for gig economy workers was that you didn't have to think. You could just come onto the system and you could start working right away. And so the the time to get started was basically however long it took for you to sign up 
and be acknowledged by the system. But then even in the early days of Lyft, you had the guy who drove around a trivia lift. And if you answered enough questions correctly, he had treasure chest in the back of the trunk and you could go get your prize after the ride. Or there was a karaoke lift. So you can see, yeah. see these lift drivers who weren't just there to be a part of the system, but rather wanted to differentiate themselves. And I go back to that concept as that's, that is the solopreneur. And for the solopreneur, there aren't that many platforms where you can differentiate the service that you want to provide because most of these service marketplaces want to standardize the service that you're providing. And so I've become very interested in this concept that we at Floodgate call the Iron Man suit for the solopreneur. So there are lots of different ways of looking at this depending on how you think about the solopreneur. It could be someone who used to be a gig economy worker who now wants to differentiate their sets of services. It could also be you know, someone who, who's an influencer. An Instagram influencer is a job that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. And yet these people have very interesting jobs that are full-time and provide pretty good income. How do you value that? As a financial institution, how do you provide a mortgage against it? All of these things are very, they're new and they're dynamic and they're being developed over time. And so to me, all of those themes fit under this idea of a new social contract between employee and the work that they do. So it's kind of an evolution in, in many different kind of authors, including obviously yeah. you s selecting what makes sense, what is and, and what doesn't. What are some of the this is. So interesting. And this is, this is, by the way, this is why I love chatting with smart investors, because it is so fun to, it's essentially like 360 degrees of uh, problem. Yeah. And it's not just like problem and then A, B, C, or D, multiple choice, here's the answer. So what are the implications of this kind of trend? Yeah. And do you, do you look for companies that are you just kind of you know, ear to the ground waiting for companies that fit within this, this problem set that you see coming yeah. or like, how does that work? Starting with, um, just some observations, what are the implications of this good or bad and not even maybe related to investments? What are some of the implications of the future of, of work when you, when you consider this direction? So I think for me, it allows me to take the the, the huge amount of email volume that we get and prioritize at least those themes that I'm most interested in. So there's a, a small number of real areas that I'm most interested in at a given point. And, and so I think the theme is wide enough that it captures actually a lot of different types of companies. And uh, to me, that, that's, that's a, a, it's a way of creating a funnel on some level. Um, I think that the difficulty actually for, for this kind of roadmap, when you're as early as we are in investing is that there are no metrics really that you could apply against these types of businesses. There is, uh, there, there's a relative sort of shape to the, the space, but because we're looking at it in a first in first out basis, 
you don't know if, you know, a year from now there will be a better company that even more closely matches your your vision. And then I think that the worst piece that you can you you can execute on as an investor is you're investing in your own vision and not on the founders beliefs. Do you mind explaining that a little bit more? So, yeah, if I have this idea that I want to create Iron Man suits for the entrepreneur, I might have a very clear sense of what that necessarily means. But suppose an entrepreneur comes along and they have a slightly different take on it. Am I investing in their beliefs? Do I really believe what they believe? Or am I just hoping that she will eventually pivot to what I want them to pivot to? Mm. And I think it's really dangerous to invest in the hope that someone will pivot into the direction that I want them to go into. Because in that case, I should be starting the company and I should be doing the work. I shouldn't be asking a founder to give up their beliefs to pursue mine. Are there examples of companies that you've missed because you felt this is my hypothesis of the space? This is my belief system. I don't think this really fits. And then they end up being right to where you look back or obviously so many of these have spaces to where multiple yeah, winners I mean, can win. Are there some that come to mind where you you passed at the time because you didn't feel like it fit within where you thought things were going and then yeah, ended up being wrong? I think the the best examples are uh, Instacart and DoorDash to us. The some of the things that we thought were interesting, um, we we felt that there were potentially unit economic issues because of the uh, we had knowledge from our TaskRabbit investment what a particular delivery person would cost. Uh, and so when we were looking just purely at the delivery model, I couldn't make sense of that as the market. And I think the place where I was wrong was I was, I questioned how sustainable, uh, the markups on restaurant food would be. And, uh, they've proven out that they're able to do markups on restaurant, uh, fees or coordinate with the restaurants to take a piece of that margin, which which I don't think I, I fully understood would be possible. So sometimes you can know a little bit too, too much, much right? And, and then and discount the possibilities, which I think is really dangerous too. Is there a way to overcome that or uh, especially kind of from the broader theme of being, you've invested now in probably so many spaces and it's almost, it's almost like a, a cliche that you can academically be yeah. right, but too early. Yeah. And then get burned. How do you overcome? Is there a way to overcome that psychologically to say, okay, I'm just going to keep investing in this space, yeah. even though I've been burned a couple times? I think I think there is sort of emotional mental fatigue for any investor in a particular space. But but thankfully, there's like so many different spaces, right? I think a critical. I think another way to ask the question is probably how do you maintain your optimism when so many companies go mm -hmm. wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is the crux for a lot of investors. Like, how do you maintain your optimism? Is either you're you're fundamentally optimistic person. I think Mike Maples is one of those people. Um, 
for me, I actually have to regain my optimism. And the way I do that is I, I do it through logic, right? What has changed? What's different this time around? Why, why should I look at this space again? And because I'm more logical, I have to return to first principles and say, okay, this thing is actually very different today. The reason why it didn't work last time is for X, Y, and Z. But those reasons have either gone away or different now. Um, emotionally, sometimes that's hard to do though. And I think that, uh, that's, that is probably the most important job that an investor has is to regain their optimism, go out and find, find another awesome company. What are some of the, so you mentioned future of work. Is that how you would classify that space? Yeah. It's, yeah. I call it the social contract, but it's, it mm. is basically how, how will people relate to work in the future? What are some of the other themes that you find interesting right now for entrepreneurs listening that they can email you and, and it will fall in with, with those funnels? Yeah. I'm, I'm still, I still love marketplaces and, and I, I love consumer marketplaces. I love B2B marketplaces. That's just, uh, something I feel like I've known for so long that, and I think they're transformative, um, for all sorts of different industries. I think it introduces new kinds of efficiencies. Uh, so that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to be really interested in. Uh, I think a, a place where I'm sort of dabbling and I'm not sure where it's going to go, uh, is that I believe from everything I've read and heard that Moore's law is on the verge of ending. And the piece that I would really love to understand better is what Moore's law being doubling transistors every 18 months. Yeah. And sort of this concept that, uh, you just had to wait and you would have more compute power and it would basically come for free. Mm -hmm. So your next iPhone wouldn't be way more expensive, but it would have a better camera would have all these great features and, uh, your applications would run faster. Uh, that is probably coming to an end. And within the next five years is what a lot of, uh, academics are saying. And can I, so can I ask why I, it's, I feel like they, they, um, I know, I know very little about yeah. this topic. I feel like it, it has been predicted that it was coming to an end yeah. for a while. Why, why do you feel strongly at this time? It's so it's, uh, both the correct. people who are saying it. So, uh, there are a couple of, so the, the former Dean of engineering at Stanford, uh, Dean Plummer, um, gave a talk about this very fact. And basically, um, you just, it's been very, very difficult for, uh, the companies involved to make things smaller. And so they, they've sort of pushed off the deadlines for a little while now. And so it's, it's becoming slower, um, and the ability to do so is highly questionable. And so it's, it's in that ability to make things smaller that then allows you to fit more onto the same area. And so therefore more compute. Uh, and so I think, you know, that one of the, the professors I talked to said that they had actually, you know, a couple of PhD students who were able to make. Uh, chipsets that were for a particular use case have that kind of property of of increased compute capabilities, but they they think that that's going to be more of um, the theme from now on is that you're going to have 
chipsets that are more tailored to a particular use case and not general, which I think is it it just sort of causes you to think about well, what does that mean for um, devices? What does that mean for applications and how they run on particular devices? Again, this isn't a rabbit hole I've fully gone through and understand. And so, but I think it's a fascinating idea. Um, so that's one that I'm sort of just starting on. Mm -hmm. Are there any in the past that you were really amped on, you know, five years ago, six years ago, you were amped on and then yeah. it didn't play out that you kind of take a lesson or two away from, or maybe just don't, re don't revisit in your mind. I still revisit this one. I, so I think, um, I used to call it lean back commerce. And so, and maybe Instagram is this, but I, I once watched, I went to QVC. It was uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. It was in the middle of nowhere. And I visited because I was so fascinated by how data-driven they were. And you would literally watch someone who was a, uh, a director of the show. And he wasn't the artistic director. He was literally the data director. And he looked like he was sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal. And he would direct the host at QVC to say something that had caused numbers to go up a few minutes ago. Uh, and he would have her repeat those same words. And he knew that if she said that within six seconds, they would start to see impact on whatever metric he cared about. And I remember thinking to myself, I came back to our office and I said to Mike, that was a capitalist mutation. Like I've never seen anything like that before. I think if they were making less than $10,000 a minute on the product, they'd pull it because it wasn't worth it. It was just very interesting to see. But from the user side, I remember seeing a friend's mom who watched QVC. And for her, it wasn't that she was going to sit down and watch the show. She thought of her, the host as sort of a friend who was on the background, and sometimes she might buy something. And I love this idea of commerce as not being something that you go and do, but that you happen to do it in the process of being entertained. And, and I remember thinking that the mall used to be this way, that you would go and it wasn't that you would go to the mall to go shopping. You were there to hang out with your friends and you might buy something as a result of that. And this was in an era where I remember seeing a ton of apps where people were saying, we're going to recreate the mall. And every app was, you would go into a, a dressing room, you'd take a picture of yourself, putting on the clothes and you'd send it to your friends and then they'd help you decide which outfit to buy. And I remember thinking that wasn't the crux of the interaction. The crux was actually hanging out and then having this happen in the background. And what was interesting to me is that there's no place, I think even to this day, maybe again, Instagram could be that, that one place where you're there to, to, to be entertained or to hang out. And then in the background, you might happen to buy something. And, and so um, in mobile, in online, most of the sites that you go to, you are there to purchase. Uh, and so that discovery component doesn't really exist. Mm. And so uh, 
I, I still believe that there's, and that with more micro brands, and you'll know this better than I do, but with more micro brands, more e-commerce stores, I think actually that shopping experience has become really, really difficult. And if you're online, you probably have 50 tabs open and you're switching between different ones to buy like the perfect dress for your daughter. And there's no place that has a element of product curation um, or product feed curation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I still think that there is space for, I used to call it shoppable Pinterest, where you would go and someone else has curated all of Nordstrom's because they actually have something very close to my taste and I can follow her instead of looking at all of Nordstrom's for like the right dress for me. Right. Well, it is, it is interesting that, so I do, yeah, I do love this space. And as a, as an angel investor, I love, uh, financial technology and that's my background. I love D to C companies, yeah. direct to consumer companies and CPG companies as well. And then I love, um, marketplaces and just experience at Airbnb taught me a lot about the the network effects and and the beauty of those systems when they get going for the world. But the on the direct to consumer and CPG space, one of my observations that I've loved about the space is at least in my own behavior, like with this rebel drink or every episode having a random weird drink in it or any of the number, you know, number of investments that are made in the space. It is these brands are kind of like I, you know, I was the kid at 14, 15, 16, burning CDs and sharing mm-hmm. indie bands yeah. with people and feeling like, you know, I'm kind of curating what people, what my friends should be listening to and, and felt a lot of pride in going out and finding great, great bands and bringing them back. And, and I've just woke up 15 years later feeling like, oh, I'm doing that with brands, with mm-hmm. products that happen to have a brand behind it, but a product of, have you tried this matcha tea? Have yeah. you tried this? uh amazing um you know device yeah and and what i have found is that that is kind of that uh, the uh, my other kind of epicurean friends mm-hmm. are very similar and people really value my wife is kind of the same way and and people really value asking those people what do you think about this for our daughter like Totally. She is all about these are the right strollers, these are the bad strollers, yeah. this this type of water bottle. Um, and and it's this um, I don't know, information currency that you're providing value to your community. And it's really it is really fun and it is inherently social, not in a technology sense, but inherently social of, oh, I'm gonna go out and find this this valuable thing and bring it back to my community. And yeah, that's really the there is entertainment in that. Um, but also, yeah, Instagram is seems to be really great for that, where you're there just to be entertained and then you can discover these things. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's like you, it has to be an entertainment site, but I, I feel like um, it's that product curation is really, really tricky. And we, we currently count on um, more centralized brands to do it for us. We're counting on Target to do it for us. We're counting on some baby store to do it for us. But even they, they will want to give us 10 different options for the baby bottle. And I'm sure, you know, back when I was having kids, they were, when we had our first baby 12 years ago, I remember I created this Google spreadsheet that then became sort of 
the Bible that was sort of given to other people and they would add their own things on there. And I'm sure you guys have sort of some version of that we now, do, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but but one wonders why is it a Google spreadsheet, and why why isn't it uh, why isn't it in a place where you could just go ahead and buy it, and uh, why isn't it that uh, for for a lot of other things, right? There's probably something that you have a strong opinion on. I have a lot of strong opinions when it comes to educating my kids and like what to use with them and what not to use with them. And so I have books that I've used. Uh, I have books that I hate. And, uh, and so my friends ask me for that and, and I hand them a bunch of links versus something that they could visually scroll through. And then in the same way with clothes, right? I have some friends who are incredibly fashionable and they're always telling us, oh, this is the designer. Uh, she has a bespoke boutique here you can find. Um, or this necklace, you know, this is where I got it. And instead of her having to go through all of that over and over again, she probably spends a lot of time actually curating her own product feed if she could then just share that out, I would love to see that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's um, there's just so much around things that people are passionate about that they are natural curators for. Why don't we have a space for that? Mm -hmm. That is really interesting. What is, um, there's something else that I wanted to go back to and, and ask about. You, you mentioned that you as a firm came up with this concept of the Iron Man suit for the entrepreneur. Yeah. How does, how does Floodgate so Floodgate has three partners, is that correct? We have, we have four, partners. four partners. One one does, Iris is entirely focused on follow-on financing. Okay, so four partners, and how many people uh, in total at Floodgate? Uh, we have 11. 11, so how does a VC firm or seed fund firm come, like how did, how did that term come about? Is it just email exchange? Do you all meet on Mondays for three hours? I think for most entrepreneurs, yeah. it's a pretty you know, ivory tower kind of black <laughs> box of how VCs operate. Yeah. Um, so I think that one, I think Mike Maples was, you know, he listened to me talk about this and he's like, oh, you mean the Iron Man suit for the entrepreneur or solopreneur? It's like, exactly. And is this over one of your weekly meetings, daily meetings? Is it just over lunch? Yeah. Sometimes we'll just, uh, we have, we have, either a quarterly session where we talk through some of the themes that we're thinking about, or sometimes it's just like people are gathered around lunch and we'll say, Hey, this is something I've been thinking about. So yesterday, um, I came in and I have a class that I teach at Stanford and this, this year we're teaching it in the winter quarter. So starting in January. So I've been revisiting some of the frameworks that we teach. And I came into the meeting and I said, hey, guys, you know, I've been thinking about this thing we call the value stack, and I think I've recreated it and I have some reasons for why it looks different. Uh, let me just run it by you because it's not it's not fully baked, but I just need some feedback and some ideas back. And, um, and we just spent sort of an hour riffing on it. I just drew some things up on the board and I said, here's how I use it with some of my portfolio companies. This is the insights that I've gained from it. And so what do you think? 
And then you know, one of the things I said to them was like, should I, should I just blog about this and learn it in public or should I really, you know, fully bake it before I put it out? And so we had a, like kind of a funny debate about that. But uh, those are the, the, those are the moments that I think for me, I, I really treasure because everyone's giving me their perspective. Uh, Mike is adding to it. Arjun has like a completely different view of like, okay, for this type of company, how would it work? Uh, and Iris is always very additive and sort of clarifying different points and saying why something, um, works or where it doesn't, where it starts to fall apart. And so I, I really enjoyed that interplay with our partnership. Those generally happen, I would say, you really peel it back Mondays or Fridays. That's when we're together in the office most often. That's a, that is, yeah, I've always wondered. There's there's no magic to, a lot of times we always say, if, if an entrepreneur could only see us on Mondays, half of the time we have like food everywhere, we're disorganized and we're just trying to get to some decisions, but someone like says something and we, you know, we go down that, that rabbit hole for 30 minutes before another partner's like, wait, we were here to make a decision on this other thing. Uh, so we can't, I can't say it's a well-oiled machine, but, um, the thing I love about floodgate is we do have a ton of fun and we play pranks on each other. So that that's what makes it awesome. Well, it comes out that you all feel very familial and, and, and like I was saying earlier, just a really fun dynamic between you all. It's um, and it, you, I think for outsiders, it's only just glimpses that you see, but it seems just very, uh, very fun. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. What are some of the things that um, that if you were to take the lens of of kind of that thinking about the conclusion? And obviously, training your mind to see through trends and where things are going. If you were to turn that inward on venture capital or floodgate five years from now, 10 years from now, what are some of the observations that that same kind of tracking system has has illuminated for you of how investing is changing? If it's invest, if it's changing, and everyone seems to think it is changing. Yeah. But it's obviously unclear. I think it's wildly changing. Um so number one, I think that when when I got started in 2008, it was a world where the world was actually in the fetal position, right? That there's a huge financial crisis. Everyone feels like the major institutions that, that you didn't think would fall apart were falling apart. And in that moment, we're starting up a venture capital firm. And we're putting up a sign that says, we'll write you, you know, $500,000 million checks. And there just weren't that many people doing that. And so we entered into a world where we just needed to find some entrepreneurs. And chances are they, they might be talking to a handful of other folks, but those other folks also couldn't write a big enough check. So we'd hold hands and do it together. And so, uh, you know, you wake up in 2019 and there are literally thousands of firms like ours now in the market. Really? How many have you seen estimated? They, they I think they said that there's a, over a thousand microfunds. And and to me, and how do you define microfund? Microfunds are sort of one hundred fifty million dollars and less. Mm -hmm. And 
to me, that's just crazy because I remember when we got started, you could literally rattle off the people with whom you could share around on one hand. And that's the people. And then uh, when you went to Y Combinator, it was in this kind of small room and there might have been 10 rows of chairs. And now, now it's like in Pier 38 and there's probably a thousand people or more uh, jam-packed into to this room. So to me, like the, the world has rapidly changed um, into a place where the you went from a world where the the capital was the the rare element within the ecosystem. And so the entrepreneur needed to find their way to that rare element on Sand Hill Road someplace. And now today there is, as everyone says, an abundance of capital. And yet the number of great entrepreneurs doesn't suddenly exponentially increase. It hasn't thousand X. Right. And so now the the search is on for for the next great entrepreneur. And so it is, it's flipped. It's literally flipped in terms of what is the rare element in the ecosystem. And so from a uh, investor standpoint, now sourcing is the critical component of what we do, um, as long as you're good at picking and winning. Mm-hmm. And so, so one of the things that we think a lot about at Floodgate is how do we source better? How do we find the entrepreneurs before other people do? How do we access them? How do we make sure that they understand the value that we can provide to them? How in in getting back into, I love asking people about specifics. How do you, as a firm specifically speaking, you know, re- source deals? How do you focus on it? Is it equal parts build up the brand and build up the reputation and and the network and kind of funnel them in, and equal parts just search party out and about? Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of all of the above. Part of it is that people just need to know you're in business. So you just need to go where the entrepreneurs are. Uh, I spend a lot of time teaching. It's It sort of helps me uh, communicate better the way I think about the world and crystallizes the way I think about things. And so then it enables me to target the things that I, are most important to me. It also just builds my my contacts, right? I, I'm actually naturally very introverted. And so I am not the person who will be at a bunch of VC parties unless I make it an OKR, which I have, you know, I have to go to six events this year. Um, And so, so to me, I have to build up my network in a much more authentic way. And so that happens much earlier on. So some of it is just students that I've had relationships with for over 10 years. Uh, that to me is an authentic relationship. Uh, some of it is continuing to teach because to me that is an authentic form of, of relationship as well. Uh, and then some of it is actually getting onto something like this and and trying to reach a wider audience about the way I think or the way I see the world. Uh, and then a lot of it is then chasing after specifically the ideas that we're most interested in. So if if there are companies that are working on uh, empowering the solopreneur, if there are companies that are working on this concept of 
remote work and knowledge management, those types of things. I'm really interested in them. And I'm just trying to start creating more content around that. I do believe that this, this world order that we've entered into requires us to be much more thoughtful about generating content. And so that's, that's a massive push that Floodgate is making in this second half of the year. With investing wildly changing, just to dig a little deeper on that topic, because it's, it is all, it's so interesting to think through those implications. What do you think are the implications of this abundant capital or a thousand X in terms of funds, micro funds out there? What are the implications of that for just the world at large uh, and then entrepreneurship beneath that? So on, on, on the positive side. Right. Yeah. On the positives and negatives. My, my hope is actually that the venture firms that have been created don't have all the same kind of return profiles because we don't have the same investors. So if we don't all have the same return profile, which means most traditional venture capitalists are looking for companies that if we invest into them, they could literally return multiples of our fund. So if you have a $150 million fund with that single investment, I'm probably looking to return, you know, 200, $300 million back to my investors. That means I have to own 10% of a $3 billion company, right? Mm -hmm. That's a scale that is huge and very small in terms of numbers. But if that's not the return profile that the investors are seeking out, then what happens is something I think is really interesting, which is the potential that you will find so many more different kinds of entrepreneurs receiving funding. And if the the expectations of the investor are aligned with the entrepreneur, I think both sides can actually make quite a lot of money. I think it's the mismatch that can lead to a lot of tension and problems in the future. But my hope is that, that there's so many different types of risk profile for entrepreneurs out there. And if we can fill all of the gaps, then, then we have this incredible like, abundance of opportunity. We're going to see a massive democratization of entrepreneurship, which I think we saw the beginnings of in 2008 as entrepreneurs needed less money to get started. And the, the, you know, the final end state is that everyone can actually be their own entrepreneur and you have solopreneurs who are empowered by software or people who need some level of investment can receive that investment. And if you need a larger investment to then blitz scale your business, you can receive that. But all of the different types of risk are now covered by the, the myriad of investors that are out there. Hmm. All the way down to uh, influencer on Instagram. Yeah, I think the problem capital. is right now, everyone thinks that they're trying to invest in the next Facebook and not every business is built like that. Mm -hmm. What is... And, and not every time allows for it's yeah. it, with an explosion of uh, I think you can find and carve out spaces that are so rare. And there is one marketplace. That's why I do like marketplaces that can win and yeah. approve the 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 power law. But I mean, you can see this with the 
attention economy and something like social media, where if there's just a deluge of offerings, they all kind of eat away at each other and and there isn't necessarily going to be a winner uh, take all with a $400 billion market cap like Facebook. Yeah. I wonder though, like, I think that the thing that people are always interested in, particularly for consumer, and again, you'll know this better than I do, is that uh, the the way you used to win in uh, consumer was distribution, right? And so it was shelf space in a grocery store. Uh, and I think a lot of people think of Instagram as the shelf space. But in reality, the shelf space are these influencers now. And so they how are the do shelves, you, right? They yeah. are the shelves. And how do you now turn that into a business? How do you empower them to curate, to be the voice that they want to be? If they want to make it into business, how do you help them do that? Uh, if they want to make it into business, how do you make help them do that? I think that's that's an interesting theme as well. There's you touched on the impatience um, and your own impatience and and having three kids being yeah. somewhat of an antidote to that, or it being a poison. I, one of the questions that I, I love asking guests is around the areas of what are some of the disciplines or areas in life outside of work that have taught you so much about, or at least helped you learn yeah to to pursue your work in a in a better improved way what what comes to mind in terms of areas outside of work that that inform how you actually approach work yeah i think it's uh i think there might be three so the first is i i've been playing piano since i was four and it was one of these things, I was not forced to take piano lessons. I begged for piano lessons when I was four. And, and so my parents never had to tell me to practice. I would, they would have to tell me to stop practicing. And um, one of the disciplines around piano that I always loved was that if you just practice the details, there was this sort of discipline to practicing uh, that if you got really good at it, there was an element of how self-critical you were, but also discovering what was beautiful in what you had done and becoming your own worst, but also best critic. And uh, I, I love that because I think I'm a horrible meditator. I cannot get out of my own head. But if I'm playing piano, it's the only moment I've ever had where my entire self shuts down and I'm truly just in that moment. And I'm hearing the things that are beautiful. I'm hearing the things that aren't quite right. Sometimes it's the things that aren't quite right that are beautiful. And so that to me is a discipline that like I think about work and there's so so many similarities to that, right? It's like, how intense are you being in that moment? And are you noticing the things that are important? The discipline of being self-critical and not just your own biggest fan. I think those those are things that I, I really value from that set of experiences that I've had in my life. Um, a second theme I would, I would think about is... Uh, this idea of uh, when I was in high school, I was in speech and debate, and it was 
the thing that I love to do most out of everything else. And the the quality that it teaches you is that you aren't allowed to take sides because they will assign you affirmative or negative at any given moment. And so on any topic, you learn to actually argue both sides of any argument. And I would spend hours arguing against myself. So I'd write one argument down and then I would say what the counter to that would be. Then what's the counter to that argument? And then what's the counter? You could go forever. And the thing that I value about that even even today is that even in highly politically charged situations, I can actually mentally take the side of the opposite side. And I wish we would teach this more to our kids. I wish we would force ourselves to do it more. Uh, Because even in places where I feel completely right or vindicated or stubborn, I could still force myself out of that mindset and think about, well, what's the real argument here? How, How would I create an argument for the other side that I could actually defend? Um, and, and I think in work, that's also important because in any negotiation, you want to be able to stick, go three steps ahead, but even more so developing empathy is actually really putting yourself in their shoes and arguing for them. And, and so I feel like that, that skill set I learned as a, as a kid still comes into play today on on a day-to-day basis um and then i said i had third a third point now I well i'll say the the, those two are fascinating <laughs> i think i think the and it touches on some of the themes that have come up on podcasts before uh the first one on you know playing piano i also play the piano and and one of the themes that's come up on the podcast is is encouraging encouraging people to create in all different facets even if it's mm-hmm. a garden or picking up an instrument yeah because it gets you into that, that I think it's a really, you touched on something really novel, hadn't thought about, but it is whenever I'm playing the piano and, or a new instrument and then leave, I, I've, I recognize this place of like, hopefully neutral, like I'm hopeful and neutral to where I'm conscious of where I made mistakes, where I've improved. Oh, wow. I, was able to do that a little bit better than yesterday or last week. I've been trying to do that for a few weeks and was able to to get there, but also neutral because I'm really conscious of, oh, I got to get better on this and this. Yeah. And I think as an entrepreneur, the best places that I, when I was really at my best, I was in this hopeful neutral yeah. state. I was neither too high, too low. It was neutral because I was conscious of the good things we we're doing, the bad things. But I, it was a feeling that I was really familiar with because of whether it was playing sports or whether it was... Uh, creating music. It just, it was a familiar feeling to mm-hmm. be in that hopeful neutral state. The other thing that you, you touched on with the second story and, and I think the, um, something that's really, I guess, coming to mind with the, um, remind me what was the, the, the context of your second story. It it's was a debate. the debate and kind of being able to see both sides. Yeah. Yes. Being forced to actually being forced, ar- argue yeah. both sides. Right. That's really, I think that that is, that's so unique. You, I mean, where in life are you forced to see both sides? It's, yeah. it's usually voluntary if you can do it. 
um, but very rarely, if ever, forced. And that's so. Yeah, it was interesting. I had interesting. a. I was having a conversation with my twelve-year-old daughter, and she asked me the question: Why is that? She plays soccer. Why is it that the women's team in soccer uh, gets paid less than the men's team? So this has been in the news. It's something that she's seen. And so, you know, one of the things we talked about was, well, what would the arguments be actually for paying a men's team, wow, not necessarily the soccer brilliant team, exercise. but a men's team um, more than a women's team? And actually, like making her like sort of formulate some of these these answers, and then saying, "Okay, is that true in this case of women's soccer?" And and are those arguments also are they valid? Like, why would they be valid? Why would they not be valid? And I think, you know, just just sort of hammering in the point of like, well, it's deeply unfair, and so you know, this is what you need to know about it, but rather just really understanding where, where do the nuance viewpoints exist? I think that's, um, it's become more and more important. I think it's critical to teach our kids. And, you know, it's something that we're trying to even teach at, at Stanford in, in, in our entrepreneurship programs is that there's a, there's a total rush to judgment oftentimes based on a headline and you peel back the layers and a lot of these issues are very nuanced and no one recognized what the nuance was and so so you know and obviously there are there are places where issues are black and white and and I, I see those as well but I would say 99% of issues that I see professionally are much more nuanced than you would believe in a in a headline um, in TechCrunch. Right. Yeah. And I feel like there's a rush to judgment, a rush to community versus mm -hmm. kind of the tempered approach to truth. And it's like, hey, this is where everyone's going. Yeah. I kind of believe it. And let's, uh, I wrote a essay uh, a little while ago of um, trying to distill, trying to answer the question in my own head of what's the difference between a mob and a crowd. And yeah. and in a mob is has a commitment towards community. And there could be really strong biological reasons why. You choose to join the herd, to yeah. join the community. And I think it was, it could have been apocryphal, but I know Mark Twain just talked about whenever he finds himself in the majority, he assumes he's wrong. Yeah. And and is able to kind of, at least the, um, the framework there is, you know, just, you can always question if it's, I mean, human history is basically just majorities being wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. So you can safely assume that there are shades of gray or even this thing that feels right communally or feels like, yeah. hey, this matches up with the headlines I've been seeing. There's or still space to to think uh, independently and, and value or at least try to navigate a 360 degree or both sides of something to yeah. try to come up with. Or I think it's more, it's also this view that just because someone believes something different doesn't mean that they're evil mm -hmm. and, uh, and that there might be a reason why they believe that way. I just, I read this book, uh, by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, uh, which was, a, an incredible book about how people have different ways in which they approach morality. And it's not the a wrong or right way, but it's different flavors. He he describes it as taste buds of morality. And um, 
some groups have much more narrow view of what morality means and some people have a much wider view. And and depending on on that viewpoint, you will come to wildly different conclusions about exactly the same topic. And and I thought that was a really eye-opening way of thinking about how you have differences of opinion with different people and if you adopt their viewpoint, you can actually see how they get to that answer. Mm, that's really interesting. It's Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. The Righteous Mind. Yes. I really recommend it. That's awesome. Okay. Well, I've got two questions left. And yeah. the first one is, uh, tell me three stories that have helped shape who you are. And you, we might have touched on yeah. these uh, already, but tell me three stories in your life that have helped shape who you've become. Yeah, I guess. So one story is is more of a, a legacy story. So um, I just two of them might be more legacy stories. So one is uh, where I come from. And so uh, I have this great grandmother that I've never met, but I wrote about her when I was in third grade and we had to do one of these family history assignments. And uh, I had interviewed a couple of my relatives and I had come across the story of my great grandmother on my father's side. And she was a woman who lived in Tokyo. She was a martial, martial arts expert. And so she could quite literally kick anyone's butt. And the people around town knew this. And so she was unique in the sense that she could walk around alone, even at night. And what was her name? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember what her name was. She, her last name is Miura. Um, and, and so she, she was really, really unique in the sense that she had this, um, she, she was also, uh, a, she was a, she was a person who actually ran the family business at the time. And so my grandfather or my great grandfather had some sort of business and he was out of town quite a bit is what the story goes. And she she eventually um, had all these people who would come to her for help. And she was known to be sort of this generous person. And so she would just sort of give people money and her husband eventually catches on to this fact and this is your great grandfather my great grandfather and gets very angry and ultimately this leads to a divorce which is like unheard of at that time so she was the mother to nine children and she was the mother of my dad's mother so she had nine children of which most of them became doctors or um or government leaders, and they were uh, really well regarded within the community, um, very well educated, but she single-handedly raised all these kids because of the husband left. And the reason why that's such a uh, important story to me is that I love telling it to my daughter. And I remember hearing this story from my relatives, uh, the one, the relatives who knew her and the, the stories they would tell about her and knowing that I literally came from a bloodline of a woman who in that era in Japan could walk around at nighttime by herself because she could take care of herself. 
she could be divorced by her husband and she'd still raise nine children to be respectable members of society, that she had the independence and kindness to actually provide for people within her community, and that there was this incredible mix of strength and independence, but also uh, competence and kindness. And uh, so she was sort of like this, this legendary great-grandmother. And the story, when I tell it to my daughter, is you come from this line of women, this like line of badass women, not just women who did what they were told, did what society expected them to do, but you literally come from a lineage of a bloodline that expects badassery from you. Right. It's in your blood. Yeah. That's and amazing. so, so to me, like my sons, it's like as important to them, but like, I'm like, that is, that's, that's powerful in what, what I can expect from. And I've read like the literature that says you have to tell people, your kids stories about where they come from, because sometimes your perseverance and your tenacity has to come from a different place. Can't come from what you're experiencing in that moment, you have to have a belief in the story of who you are. And, and to me, that story of who I am has always been really important to me. That's um, awesome. So I think that's been something that's been very formative. I think a, a second story of like really who I am uh, comes back to uh, when I was a kid, um, we actually lived in Fremont, California for a little bit. And uh, this is back in the 80s when the Numi plant was a, a very important, uh, it's now the Tesla factory, but it was like the new GM lean manufacturing factory. And Fremont was a very blue collar neighborhood at the time. My dad was working at NASA and he was commuting from Fremont to Moffett Field. Uh, we were new to the area. And we were a Japanese family living in a largely white blue collar neighborhood that had mostly employees of this Numi plant. And back in the 80s, Japan was a mega power. They were going to take over the world um, economically, really looked like it. And so people were generally fearful of Japan as an economic power. And indeed, in that time period, the GM plant was really, really mismanaged. There are lots of stories around it, and it closed down, which meant a lot of people in our neighborhood lost their jobs. And in that context, uh, we're the only Japanese family in this neighborhood. And one day we woke up, and on my garage door and on my parents' car, uh, some kids had come by. And they had uh, spray painted on our garage door, go home Jap, and it had swastikas on it. And then swastikas on our cars. And um, my poor dad, it said they had spray painted Kami on his car. Mm. And I remember feeling like this deep kind of shame at that time of, the, the, that's the realization like, oh, we're, we're a very Japanese family in a very uh, different neighborhood. But the, the lesson that I got out of it was interesting. My mom refused to take down what was painted on our garage for probably a month. Mm. 
And people kept on coming by and saying, we'll help you paint it over. And my mom said, well, I want the neighborhood to know, you know, what, what they've done. And so I'm going to keep it up for a few weeks longer. And I remember being like, why, please just take it down. It makes me feel so different. Um, but I remember also the weekend when my mom finally said, okay, we can paint it over. And how many neighbors actually did show up to help us do so? And to me, it was this interesting reflection on feeling different at one point, but then realizing that you know, my mom also said, you know, why this happened was because lots of people lost their jobs and, and they're feeling bad about it. Um, and so I remember her trying to explain that to me, but then also the reaction from the neighborhood of all these really great people wanting to help and wanting to not be that or not having that be a representation of their neighborhood and reaffirming for me, like the, the goodness of people. And so, um, it's, it's something that I, I can, you know, I still reflect on because it was such a, it was such a striking moment for me as a kid as something that I still remember. Um, my mom still has pictures and, uh, and she was showing them to me recently and, the me- the predominant memory of it not being the moment when we saw what had happened, but like I remember the month where she kept it up, and then the end where all these neighbors showed up to help clean up the mess that was made. Wow! Yeah, that's a uh, powerful experience to to see both sides of that in just mm-hmm. the interim month of of your mom choosing to leave it up just to help the community see a reflection of what is part of the community. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's, she's, she's an interesting and strong character. So I thought that was, that was, uh, it was a big learning moment for me. And then, um, the third for me would be, uh, actually starting up floodgate was a incredibly chaotic period for me. So, uh, the lesson coming out of it, I'll tell you what it is first before I tell you the story, which is if you actually think through all the things you need to get done to get something done, and it's a horribly complex mess, you you would never do some of the things that you would do. I think startups are a great example of that. You would never start a, a startup if you knew all the things that you would have to do to do it. Oh, I willfully ignore the fact that there's so many challenges. Right? I, I completely agree. It's And there it leads to a willful and reckless disregard for anything beyond yeah. 90 days. And it's just like, let's just focus. You just one focus. Foot in front of the other. And like, when you do that, like the magic happens. And so for me, starting Floodgood was definitely that I... I signed up to do floodgate with Mike in May of 2018 and I, or 2008, I had not finished my PhD at that point. And I was in the middle of my PhD and I had originally thought I was going to start a company in the space of my research, which was computer security. It was cybersecurity and math modeling. 
And I remember telling my mom, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do, you know, I'll promise I'll finish that. That's something that I, I started. I'll finish it. I had several advisors saying, you really should finish it. You're so close. I had at that time an 18 month old daughter. And then I think within two or three months, I was pregnant with my second child. And so I'm starting floodgate. I'm pregnant with my second child. And I've promised my advisor and lots of people who care about me that I will finish this PhD. And I remember just taking it day by day. I would wake up some days like 4.30 in the morning, work on my thesis until Abby woke up. Then I'd take care of her, drop her off, go to my PhD stuff. And then I would work at Floodgate. Um, and then I'd come home, fix dinner for Abby and, and my husband, and then, and then, you know, get back to work. And there was sort of this crazy juggling. And then my my dissertation committee said, okay, you should defend your thesis. And we had set this time and this date before I was going to give birth. And then of course I had preterm labor. And so they said, no, we're not going to have you defend your thesis if you have preterm labor. And so they set it for six weeks after I gave birth to which I was like, that is wow. insanity. Right. Um, but I needed to get it done. So I remember you know, six weeks after I gave birth, defending my thesis with this newborn, basically, and my two and a half year old daughter. And looking back, it's like, you're doing this crazy, impossible set of things. And, and starting Floodgate wasn't just going to a bunch of pitch meetings. We were setting up the infrastructure for the business as well. Um, I was running audit at some point because we didn't have a CFO. So. <laughs> and so like things like that, all the details, they were falling on my lap and I'm kind of doing everything. And I remember describing that to someone, what my day looked like and, and what, what I'd accomplished in a year. And I couldn't actually believe the words that were coming out of my mouth that I had successfully defended a thesis, like started a floodgate, made a, made an investment, you know, had a baby, <laughs> first baby seems still healthy and alive, like right. all of these things, like healthy wow. marriage. Um, and, and to me, like that is quintessential, like starting up You're you literally dive out of the plane and you're assembling something on the fly with the hope that some it'll, it'll all work out. And beauty is actually around here in Silicon Valley. You see so many examples of it actually does work out. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the tribe that you have around you and the friends who are pushing you and your mentors who keep telling you you can do it. But, but that's what I love about this environment is that you feel like the impossible is totally possible and you don't sit around questioning it. Well, and I think it, it, there's certainly so much to be said for the support system and, and, and the ecosystem, but I also think there's it also feels like a law of physics in that you take both feet off the ledge and Providence is there to catch you, but you have to just commit fully and just say, I'm doing this. And at least in my experience of 10 years of startups, just things start to line up. Yeah. And I mean, this podcast started with 
just two episodes, just record two episodes. Don't even think about launching it. Don't even think about putting it out there. Don't worry about all of those things. Just try yeah. to record two episodes. And, and then four months later, it, it hitting these down, I mean, it seems to be resonating with people and it feels very useful in a, and it's a, it is a, uh, a fun use of time, but it, I just look back and I'll tell people that are thinking about starting things, especially people reaching out about podcasts. And I'm just like, like with Mike, just record two episodes, just record it. Don't even think about anything else. <laughs> and in that commitment, just get some inertia going. Yeah. And in there, it feels like it's, yes, there's so many things that are, that are helpful in the ecosystem here. But I also think it's, it's almost just a, a law of entrepreneurship, wherever you are, yeah. just, just take both feet off the ledge and, and go for it and providence. Yeah. It's sort of like, you. I remember, uh, there's a ski instructor who told me like, you know, when it gets really scary, just lean forward. And I'm like, that is so crazy, but you try it. And it's so true. The more you lean forward, it turns out that the whole ski is able to carve around the mountain versus just a part of it. And so it's the physics of actually leaning forward gives you more control, which I think is just like a great example of like what, what, what startups is because it's about playing to win, not the strategy of how to not lose. Mm -hmm. And in that moment of like, I'm just going to do it and leaning forward and believing that you can make it happen. The thing the everything sort of kind of falls into place because of the physics right around you. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, there's examples of that in, in the physical world, uh, yeah. just like that of like, you know, it's, I think I was told one time that you can decrease, <laughs> this will never come up. Well, maybe it'll come up in life, <laughs> but you can decrease the force of a punch by like one tenth by leaning into it. And so, <laughs> so it's it very counterintuitive. Yes, I guess very counterintuitive. They they can't build up speed. Yeah, they can't build up acceleration <laughs> and speed and get their body into it. So it is, uh, but the, in the, the converse is also true of, of in kayaking, there's the rock effect where by looking at what you were trying to not hit, yeah, that is what almost pulls you into hitting it. Yeah, they say that in um, car racing too. You're supposed to look through the pins and not at the pins. Really? Yeah. Right. It's so, and it goes back to, you know, picking up disciplines outside of, yeah. Creation can be really helpful for Christian. Okay. Last question for you, Ian, is what is something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to, to talk about? And, yeah. and this could be just social, professional, just something that actually consumes mind space that you rarely ever find yourself talking about. Yeah. I mean, I guess I talk about this a lot with my friends. It's education. Um, mm. I don't talk about this in a work context as much, but I am totally consumed by how we educate our kids these days. And so much of what we teach our kids, and I, I'm undoing this for my children all the time, is we teach them how to do something and not why. And you think about math as like the quintessential example of that is you are telling them you carry the one over and then you add it in the next section and then you carry another one over. And they don't have a conception as to what carrying something over is about. Um, you're dividing fractions, the second number, the second fraction gets flipped. They don't tell you why. 
And so if you don't understand the why, you will forget the how eventually. If you are interested in learning the how yeah. to begin with. And so why don't we make it more interesting? Why don't we engage our kids in learning, even teaching computer science? Kids are given a pre-made project with libraries that that basically do everything for you. And then we've said that we've taught them computer science and you enter into the real world and you realize you don't have like this totally stable environment. You have to figure out how you're going to pull this all together. You might have to go download a bunch of things in order to make it work. And you have to figure that piece out. You have to figure out why you're building a product, what it's supposed to do. And and so to me, computer science is just a how. It's not, it doesn't answer the why or or how do I how do I even get this to be the thing I want it to be? Um, and so I I really grapple with that as my kids go through school. And I think about all the things that they need to learn in order to be active citizens in our world, to to be great um, creative thinkers, um, and how much how much we really do kill the joy of learning early on, and um, and the magic of these kids is like they they're so curious, and they want to sing. They want to dance. They want to learn. They want to know about the world. They want to design games. Uh, they want to play. And we we systematically sort of take it out of them. And so um, I, I wonder how you do that, if, especially if you don't have resources and and you want the world to be a fair place where if you have curiosity and desire to learn that that is given to you. And especially with the internet, especially with knowledge being so much more abundant, um, you would hope that that's the case. But I feel like we feel that kids need to know so much more. And so as a result, we're focused on quantity and not the experience and the joy of learning. That's, that is really fascinating to, to rethink about or to zoom out and think about the fact that it is so much of the how instead of the why and and i know when when i've given friends or just also uh, nephews advice on on projects or they wanted to learn to code it's like start with a project don't just yeah. abstract kind of a way to i want to learn this language start with a goal which is here's a project that you can work on or with music same thing like when i would try to learn just notes versus i want to play this song yeah and I want to share this song with and me playing it with my mom. Like that was what powered me to want to learn yeah. a Coldplay song when I was picking up piano for the first time. And that's way more powerful than, at least it was way more powerful when I tried to learn guitar and it was just a teacher and the academic just learn the keys, right. the notes and and the scales. And I was like, what's the point? Like I, I, the why is, oh, I can share this music with someone. And, yeah. and it took me probably five years later before I actually took to an instrument because I, yeah, I was thinking about the why. Yeah. That is awesome, Anne. Thank you so much for taking the time. Today. Thank you. This Thanks is a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all the insight 
And for people to, if they fall in that funnel of what they're building, how can they reach you? Yeah, it's easy. It's A Miura Co. So A M I U R A K O at floodgate.com. Awesome. Email. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time. And, uh, and yeah, I can't wait to send founders working in the spaces or really any space to Floodgate because I really love what you and Mike built there. Thank you so much. All right, Ann. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that, that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Go Below the Line, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.